Okay, so this week's Torah portion is a Torah portion of Chukas. And um, also, I'd like to, you know what, let's do it first. I want to just share that this coming week is going to be also the 12th of Tammuz. Now, the 12th of Tammuz is the birthday of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, our Rebbe's father-in-law. And also on his birthday, he was released from prison. So just to go through a little bit briefly of the story that happened. In 1927, the previous Rebbe was arrested on the 15th of Sivan. And why was he arrested? Because the Stalinist regime knew good and well that the previous Rebbe had an entire underground network that was having chedarim, Jewish schools for kids, Jewish education. They were having the mikvahs for the women. Um, so even though openly, openly there was no outright um, sin, quote unquote, uh, from the government to do this, but they were fighting it tooth and nail. And therefore, they were hunting down, and literally, the previous Rebbe's emissaries would be arrested, sent to Siberia, some of them shot. There would be another emissary to take his place. And, and it was really under the worst, worst times of the Stalinist regime that, uh, that the previous Rebbe was literally keeping he by himself with, his, you know, with the Hasidim that were dedicated to him, was keeping Judaism alive. And uh, eventually they finally arrested him and they wrote up whole um, accusations in which he, he was being charged for. And the way it would work in Russia was that they would torture you, literally torture you until you agreed and signed the accusations that you're admitting your guilt. Okay, and then once you admit your guilt and then you're being punished. Um, and obviously the previous Rebbe wouldn't sign and he was beaten. He was beaten severely. Um, whole stories thrown down the steps and the belt went into his stomach and it caused an infection. And then, the, you know, later on, the previous Rebbe ended up with, with uh, MS, multiple sclerosis. And then after that, he ended up with a stroke much later on. Um, so he suffered horrifically. Originally, he was sentenced to death after which they changed that sentencing to exile, after which they changed that sentencing to letting him go free. But the unspoken condition was that he would leave Russia, which is why after that, he went to Poland for 10 years. And after Poland, he arrived to America for the last 10 years of his life and his leadership. So he was released on the 12th of Tammuz, on the 12th of Tammuz, which was his birthday. And uh, that, that is a huge holiday. So that's coming up, God willing, um, Tuesday. So that's, that's a, just wanted to share with you that huge holiday. Um, and, and the Rebbe would always use this opportunity and this holiday to explain that it's the gateway for the sacrifice and what sacrifice are we talking about that each and every one of us has is to educate ourselves and educate our children with the true Torah education. And, and why is that a sacrifice? Because obviously, you know, 
everyone wants their kid or themselves to become a lawyer, a doctor and be successful. And yet, you know, we're going to take away from just throwing ourselves into our physical pursuits and the physical pursuits that we have for our kids and say, no, primarily, we need to understand that we're a Jew and we need to be able to function as a Jew. And, and you know, I'm just going to close up this, this topic for a moment with saying that, you know, in a way, everyone looks at the success and the nachat that they have from themselves and from their children, you know, with what have they become in their life, you know, again, a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever it may be, you know. But in truth, Jewish nachas, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I or my children know how to run a Passover Seder? Um, you know, what, what kind of great Jewish nachas is it if my son can perform brain surgery and is a top neurosurgeon, um, but he can't run a Passover Seder for his children and his grandchildren, um, you know, or comes to shul and feels like a complete idiot, not knowing, you know, how to pray or the order of prayers. Why are people standing? Why are people sitting? He feels uncomfortable in that environment. So the previous Rebbe dedicated his life to know that, yes, we want our children to be financially successful and socially successful, but we need to have them educated with Jewish education under the worst terms of Stalinist Russia, how much more so in the beautiful terms of America that is actually supportive of this and allows for private schools and even gives funds for private schools. The question is just a matter of, yes, I want my child and myself to work on our Jewish education. Okay, with that being said, let's go back to the Torah portion. So the Torah portion begins with the law of the red cow. So, and by the way, you can actually do a search online, Google red cow, and you'll see that uh, quite recently there were two red cows. One was in Texas. I forgot where the other one was. The rabbis came from Israel and actually checked it according to Jewish law to see if it would be kosher to be used in the service, so forth and so on. The history of the red cow was that there were nine red cows. The first one was done by Moses throughout the history of the Jewish people. While the first temple, the second temple were standing, they did a total of nine. The 10th one will be done when Mashiach comes. And after that 10th one is done, we won't need any more because one of the things that Mashiach is going to do, God says in the prophets uh, that says that, that I will wipe out all the tears and remove all impurities. If all impurities are removed, then we don't need no more uh, the red cow. The red cow is only to remove all impurities. Now, the red cow is used for the most difficult of impurities. Interesting enough, I want to share with you what our sages teach us. When God was teaching Moses the laws, and he came across the laws of Adam Kiamut Ohel, a person who dies in the tent, and the reason is because in the impurities of the dead body, there's different levels. One le level is if you touch the body. The other level is if you're in the same enclosed room with a body so therefore it says a person who dies in the tent anything and every anyone who's in that tent becomes impure 
And Moses, when he heard about this impurity, he became nichmeruponov, his face ashened, because he realized the severity of this impurity. And he asked God, what will be the purification of this? And God didn't answer him right away. When God came to this portion, where God was teaching him about the red cow, God said, this is the purification. Now, I just want to share with you teachings of the Rebbe of Blessed Memory. So one of the teachings is, the Rebbe asks, why is, why is Moses so concerned about this impurity, where actually it seems to be that there are different impurities which are even deeper than the impurity of coming in contact with a dead human carcass. For example, um, you will remember that Joseph asked the Jewish people before he died that when the time comes for you to be redeemed from Egypt and go to Israel, please take my bones with you. Who is the one that took the bones of Joseph? It was Moses. Where was the coffin of Joseph kept the entire 40 years? Next to Moses. And that means obviously in a separate tent, but next to Moses, which means that the body, the, the, the dead body of Joseph was actually within the Levite circle. So there was the holy temple, around it was the Levites, around it was the 12 tribes. That means that the dead body does not have to leave the camp of Levi. Now, just to put things in perspective, what does that mean once they reach the land of Israel? So the tabernacle would be Temple Mount. The tribe, the, the tribe of Levi, their place would be Jerusalem. And then the rest of the 12 tribes would be the rest of Israel. So there is nothing wrong with having a dead body in Jerusalem, right? There's, there's cemeteries in Jerusalem. However, leprosy, for example it clearly says has to leave all three camps. So, and then you have, for example, other, other, um, other um, impurities with, with uh, bodily fluids that has to leave the camp of the Mishkan, the tabernacle and the camp of the Levite, but not the camp of Israel. So here you have two of them two different impurities that obviously is harsher than that of a dead body because the dead body is allowed to be in the camp of Levi even. So the Rebbe's question is, why did Moshe Beinu, why did his face ashen when it became specifically to this impurity? And he was wondering, how will we ever purify such a person and not the other impurities? And the Rebbe gives an unbelievable explanation. And we're gonna just share it with you in, in short, so we can move along with the, the Torah portion. There's so much insights in this Torah portion, um, but I did, I did commit to talk to you about fire and water. So we'll talk about that, but let's just, as much as we can cover ground. Interesting enough, the level of impurity in general comes from the perspective of the body. The soul is obviously holy. The soul is a piece of God, which is holy. However, the body can have impurities. It in itself is not impure, but it can bring us and experience impurities. However, being that we have the godly soul within us, 
Therefore, no matter what the impurity was and how deep it was, and even with leprosy that was kicked out of all three camps and had to stand alone on the outside in the desert, outside of the clouds of glory, Moses wasn't worried because we're dealing about a living person. So even though his body brought upon him impurity, However, being a living person, he has his godly soul. And as long as he has his godly soul, Moses knows that he will be able to return back to purity. The question which mind-boggled Moses was, here we're talking about an impurity that comes about through a dead carcass. If that be the case, we're talking only about the body and only when the body experiences impurity. If that be the case, that there is no soul involved here, here we're talking about as a soul left, then what is, what is the hope for this person? That's the way the Rebbe explains Moses' question. Interesting enough, on the topic, I'll tell you what the Rebbe says God's answer was. The verse says, Zos chukat, when it talks about the laws of the red cow, it says these are the statutes, not judgments, not testimonies, not just a mitzvah, statutes. Now, in Kabbalah, we connect the word chukah with the etymology of chakika, chakuk, which means engraved. And the Rebbe says, that God told Moses, you're worried because the body on its own has no hope once it becomes impure. And God says, but the truth is that as long as the person, when he had a soul and a body together, studied Torah and did mitzvot, then the holiness of the soul was engraved within the body, so much so that even after the soul leaves the body, the body now has engraved within it, even in its state of impurity, it has engraved within it the divinity of the soul. So even the body lifelessly, and even in a state of impurity, still is connected with the power of purification. Hence, you know that it's not that once the the Jew passes away, so we don't have special laws um, for the Jewish body in the way it's prepared and buried and where it can be buried. But even the body has certain laws because the body has, has within it engraved now the divinity of the soul and therefore carries within it, even as a lifeless body, laws, holiness, and purity. Okay, let's go back now to the red cow. So, the story of the red cow basically is that we have to take a red cow. It has to be only from this age to that age. And it can't even have two black hairs. And it can't have done any work, cannot do any yoke at all. A yoke, like in the olden days, right? You had the yoke of the plow. The minute the yoke was put on, even if it didn't do any plow, it is not kosher. And this power, this red cow had to then be brought out of the holy temple in Jerusalem that used to be taken out to a special mountain. From that mountain, the Kohen that was there would then, there's actually a whole bridge that was built from the holy temple to that mountain. And the bridge was made arches upon arches upon arches. And the arches weren't one under the other. Rather, it was two, 
two, you know, the way you make bricks, they're not like piled up straight. And the reason for that is because the arches block, if there's any impurity that's lying under the bridge, the arches would block it and it wouldn't reach the top of the bridge, which means it wouldn't make the the cow and everything that was moving along or the the boy that was being brought along with it to because the boy is pure before it reaches the age of of having any bodily um um ejaculations whatever so therefore we're talking about everything was done in the utmost purity and then when it was brought to that mountain the process of the red cow was that it would be slaughtered kosherly like every other slaughter, you know, which is made by immediately cutting off the oxygen so that the brain would immediately, the nerves would be severed. It would have no feeling of pain or anything as it died. And then what would happen is that the entire body of the, of the red cow would be, the entire carcass would be burned to ashes. That ashes would be placed on water in, that, in the burning of the cow, there was also a, a thread, a hyssop, and a piece of cedar wood, and that would all be um, uh, burned. And then that would be used in the water, that the ashes would be placed into the water, and the water would be sprinkled upon the person on the third day and the seventh day of his or her or its purification process. Okay, let's give a little bit of insight here. The cedar wood is the tallest, strong tree. I shouldn't say tallest, but the strong, tall standing tree. The hyssop is a small plant, which, you know, doesn't have like the strong, it blows with the wind. The thread in Hebrew is called shni tolat. Tolat has the same etymology from the word for a worm. And basically what King David says when he talks about his humility, he talks about tolat ani. And what the message here is that impurity comes through ego, being like a cedar tree. However, if you can realize that while we need to carry strong Jewish pride, we need to have the utmost humility, like a hyssop plant herb, which blows back and forth, and like the tola'at, then we can have purification. Okay. What does it mean when the verse says that you have to put the ashes on living water? Just going to share with you, what does living water mean? So the Talmud says that living water means it's a body of water that never dries up. And it gives an example of a certain river that would dry up once in seven years and said that that is not called living waters. So even while the waters are there, you can't use those waters. The definition of living waters means from, from the perspective of spirituality, that which has an end, even while it exists, it doesn't have an eternal existence. So the definition of living from a spiritual perspective is only for that which is eternal. Hence, it has to be used from a water that never dries up at all. Now, I want to share with you a quick in, interesting insight to this whole thing before we move on to the next portion. So the red heifer is called the statute, I told you. Now, the Torah is divided into two primary um, categories. One is called judgment, and one is called 
um, statutes. The difference between the two is that judgments, it's just listen to the word, use your better judgment. That means that it's logical. The human mind understands it so much so that our sages say that a lot of the laws of judgments were God not to have taught it to us. We would have learned it from the animal kingdom, honesty from an ant. An ant will not touch any morsel of food that it senses and smells that a different ant touched. Um, we would learn modesty from a cat and so forth and so on. Now, in this category of judgments, there's another branch called testimonies, which is I may not have on my own figured out to do this, but once I'm told to do it, it makes sense. For example, to rest on Shabbat because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, to celebrate um, holidays. So literally by the word testimony, any one of these mitzvahs is the testimony of something God did, the creation of the world, um, the, the miracles he performed for us and so forth and so on. So that too is logical. However, then there's statutes and the definition of a statute is the way it's defined by our sages, a statute I have made, a decree I have decreed, and you have no, no, um, no permission to contemplate it. Now, nevertheless, Maimonides says that because his perspective is that all mitzvot are here, to make a mensch, a decent human being out of us, a higher type of living. Therefore, he says that even any mitzvah and every mitzvah, we should try to ask ourselves, how can this teach us to be a better person? What is this really teaching us? Okay. Now, with that being said, our sages tell us in the Medrash, that King Solomon knew the reason to every single one of the statutes. The only exception is this one. The red heifer, King Solomon has a verse in the Ecclesiastics that says, I have wisened and it remains distant from me. No matter how much King Solomon, who is called the wisest of old men, granted wisdom by God, unprecedented and unparalleled wisdom, he did not understand this commandment of what reason there could be to the commandment of the red cow that it would be that process would be the cleansing process of the person impure then it says god says tell tells moses tell the jewish people and they will take to you the paraduma and the sages want to know why to you moses wasn't a kohen um, not even his brother Aaron would be able to perform this. It was done by Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the deputy, not the high priest himself. And an unbelievable insight teaching is that the reason why Aaron wouldn't be able to do it is because Aaron was involved with the golden calf and the red heifer, ultimately speaking, is here to, interesting language, let the mother come and clean up the milk that her daughter spilled. So the golden calf, the calf would be the daughter and the red cow, the cow would be the mother. So the mother is here to clean up that, that uh, you know, so we have over here an interesting teaching in which, in which the, red, the, the red cow also is here to cleanse that first 
impurification after the Ten Commandments, which was the sin of the golden calf. Now, because Aaron was involved in it, even he couldn't make it. So the sages want to know, what does it mean, v'yichu elecha? Why are they taking the red cow to Moses? It, it shouldn't go to Moses. It should be brought to the temple. And Elazar, the son of Aaron, the deputy um, priest, should be the one to take it. And one of the teachings is, what does it mean, v'yichu elecha? They should take it unto you, the sages say in the quotes, God for saying, you, Moses, I will tell the reason. And there are those that say that the reason was told to him on his day of passing when he entered into the 50, 50th, the ultimate gateway of understanding. So Moses was taught the reason, and it, nevertheless, he would not be able to share it with anyone else. So we're going to talk about that, but I just wanted to give you some interesting insights. Uh, one other insight I want to share with you, and we'll talk about it again more later. Whenever we learn the statutes of a specific law, it says, for example, the Passover sacrifice. It says, Zod chukat hapesach. This is the statute, the laws of the Passover sacrifice. Over here, it doesn't say, Zod chukat paraduma. It doesn't say these are the statutes of the red cow. It says, Zod chukat Torah. This is the statutes of the Torah. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Okay, let's go further and go through the Torah portion. There's so much here that's going on. And what's going on here is that we're taught that, more, that, that uh, Miriam passed away. Now, um, uh, our sages say, why, why do we bring the connection of Miriam's passing to the laws of the red cow? And it says, just like the red cow process purifies us from sin, so too on the day of a passing of a righteous person, and where all that which he or she has accomplished throughout their lifetime on the spiritual level within the physical world, it too purifies the sins of the nation. Now, what's important for us to know is that there were three things that took place for the Jews every single day, three miracles. Number one, they received the manna every morning. Number two, they were protected by the clouds of glory. And number three, water in the desert came to them from the rock. Our sages tell us, and it brings proof as you're soon gonna see, the manna was in the merit of Moses. The clouds of glory was in the merit of Aaron. And the water was in the merit of Miriam. So much so that we refer to the rock as Be'er Miriam, the well of Miriam. So when Miriam passed away, the rock stopped giving the water and it rolled back to outside of the camp. Now, the Jews are complaining to Moses. What's going on here? We need water. We can't live without water. And Moses, God tells Moses, take your staff and gather together all the people and bring and tell the rock, talk to the rock, it should give forth water. Now, 40 years earlier, prior, God tells Moses, take your staff and hit the rock. However, this time, God tells Moses, take your staff, but he never said to hit the rock. He said to talk to the rock. Now, Moses goes to where the rocks are, and he talks to the rock, and our sages tell us that he spoke to the wrong rock, and the rock didn't give forth water. However, Moses thinks to himself, so maybe, and the Jews obviously are getting, you know, they're doing their stuff, complaining, and Moses thinks to himself, but God told me to take the staff. And he told me to take the staff last time. Last time I hit the rock, 
So probably this time I'm also meant to hit the rock because the talking didn't work. So I did what God said. I spoke to the rock, but now I should also hit the rock. And he hits the rock twice and the rock gives forth water. And God says, and because you have not sanctified my name in the presence of the children of Israel, for this reason alone, you will not enter into the land of Israel. Now, what's going on here? I mean, so if Moses would talk to the rock, that would be a sanctification of God's name. But if you hit the rock and it gives water, what, that anyone can do? That's not a sanctification of God's name. So it is an interesting teaching. Our sages tell us, Rashi quotes it and teaches it to us and tells us that God told Moses, if you would have spoken to the rock and the rock would have given forth water, so then I could have told the Jewish people, really, the rock which has no reward and no punishment, just by hearing my word, my command listens, and you Jews aren't listening. That's the sanctification of the, of the name that God was talking about. Now, another teaching of the Rebbe of St. Memory, unbelievable teaching. He says that Moses knew this. Moses knew what God was wanted. And therefore, he purposely sacrificed himself and hit the rock so that God should never be able to tell the Jews that you're not even as good as the rock. <laughs> Beautiful insight. The, the, ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice of a, <laughs> of a leader is to even hurt himself spiritually to save his people which by the way, you know that Moses does that because Moses broke the 10 commandments. He broke the two tablets without God's permission just so that the Jews never received it and they can never be held accountable for the idolatry of the golden calf. So consistently we see this about Moses. Moses says, erase me from your book if you're not gonna forgive your people. The true definition of leadership, unbelievable how the leadership we know is the ones that throws other people under the bus to save himself. The leadership, the true Jewish leadership is, no, you throw yourself under the bus or in front of the bus to save everyone else. Okay, so we're moving right along. And after that, Moses starts the process of bringing them, that's already year number 40, and they're ready to go into Israel. Moses is on the border of the Edomites. Now, to understand what's going to happen here, I need to just share with you, there are three, there were 10 nations that were promised to Abraham that would go to his children. And we only, Moses, Moses and Joshua only conquered seven of them, right? So Joshua. Why? Because three of them were taught that we're not to receive until Mashiach comes. That is the one that God gave the offspring of Asaph, which is Edom. And that's why in our prayers we say that when Mashiach comes, when will we receive the Mount of Asaph, which is Edom, is when Mashiach comes. So now Moses is just asking Edom, please allow us to cross through your land. We're not looking for any war with you. Quite the contrary, no matter how much food we have and how much everything we have, we will not use our own. We will buy from you so that you as the host will benefit from letting us cross through your land. We just want to get to the land that we're heading to, not you. And Edom says, no. 
Okay, now I want to point out to you something that Rashi says. Rashi says, look how great is Moses. He just heard that he's not going to go into the land of Israel, which means that he's going to die when the Jews are crossing into Israel. And nevertheless, he doesn't procrastinate. He goes straight to work. Again, it's all about the people. So Edom says, no, we're not going to go. So Moses goes ahead and starts moving around. He has to now go travel with all the Jewish people, the long route, instead of taking the shortcut. And all of a sudden, we're taught that Aaron passes away. Now, you will remember that I said that once Aaron, that the, go, the clouds of glory that protected the Jewish people was in the merit of Aaron's righteousness. So when he dies, all of a sudden, we see that what? We see that the Kanani, which really was the Amalekis, they went to war against the Jews. And our sages want to know, why did they go to war? What, what, how did they get into this picture? What did they have to do with anything? And the answer is because when the minute they saw that the clouds of glory were removed, they thought that God opened the Jews up to be susceptible to war. Now, you'll remember that the Amalekis were the first one 40 years ago that went to war with the Jews. So they're back again. They think this time they can be successful. And therefore, they have this war. And God tells Moses, tell the Jewish people to go to war. And he goes ahead and he goes to war. And now, so the rock was giving water brought back in the merit of Moses. And so too, the clouds of glory are brought back now in the merit of Moses. So now the Jewish people are having all three, the manna and the, and the clouds of glory and the water from the rock in the merit of Moses. And all of this will stop when the Jewish people um, when Moses passes away, uh, we're actually taught that on that, that time, a lot of mana felt, not just the daily portion, but a lot of mana felt because it would not fall anymore once Moses passed away. And therefore, the Jews were able to collect what they needed until they would be able to enter into the land and be able to start living off the produce of the land. Okay, now the Jews are going around the, the Jews are going around the, um, the land of Edom and now the Jews are, oh no, 40 years ago, we got to the border and all of a sudden we changed directions and that cost us 40 years. So now we're going to spend another 40 years. Again, God can't take us into the land of Israel. Why are we not going straight? Why are we all of a sudden, you know, making a detour? And again, the Jews are complaining and there's a, a plague that breaks out, serpents, are there killing the Jewish people. And God tells Moses to act, put up a, a, a serpent on a staff, and whoever was bit by a serpent and will look at that serpent um, will be healed. Now, I'm going to share with you a little bit of insights here. There is a, my, a commentary on the Torah, the entire Torah. And one year when I learned through the Torah, I decided I'm going to learn it with this commentary. Um, Unbelievable, Nachmanides, not Maimonides, Nachmanides, very similar life, um, but also um, a great person, a Kabbalist, a doctor, um, a therapist, a codifier, a uh, Talmudic um, scholar, and also a doctor. Now, in his commentary on this, he writes something very interesting. He writes what we now know today in science is the power of the mind in the healing and in the opposite of healing. 
and he says that in in his days it seemed to have been known that doctors did not put any pictures of animals that people would come to him for healing that they got bitten they wouldn't have a picture of a dog whatever was going on then scorpions whatever was back then why because he said because if the person would look at it after it was bit by that animal and he would look at that that picture and his mind would just think about the scorpion that bit him the actual brain connection thinking focusing concentrating would speed up the poison or speed up the damage and therefore he says he learns from a medical perspective that when god told moses no put a a shape of a serpent on that staff he was actually telling moses to make sure they don't think that this is just a normal desert plague this plague was not brought by normal it was brought by sin and it won't be removed by normal it'll be removed by repentance now moses goes ahead and he plays with the word the word for serpent is nachash and the word for copper is nechoshet so he actually made the serpent knocked out of and formed from nechoshet now in kabbalah in Hasidus, I learned this unbelievable teaching of what's really happening. What's really happening is that serpent represents sin. As we know from Adam and Eve, the first sin came about because of the serpent. Now, the whole thing was that the staff was made that they would have to look up. They would have to look up towards it. It was really tall. And according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, what's happening here is that Moses is being told to teach the Jews that you may think that serpent is about the manifestation of sin. However, if you're willing to look where the serpent truly comes from, you will realize that the serpent itself is actually holy, which has descended into sin. However, through teshuva, we transform this serpent back to its original divinity, its original holiness. Hence, you will see that before the Torah introduces in Genesis the serpent, it actually complements the serpent, saying that the Nachash Haya Orum Mikolachayas, he was actually the wisest. He actually was the one that was the king of all of the wild beasts. And obviously he was communicating with, with Eve, so he even had the power of speech back in the day. Because Kabbalistically speaking, the Nachash Hakadmoni, the original primordial serpent, actually came from a very high level. And only because it came from such a high level was it able to fall to such a low level. The higher falls lower. And therefore, what's really going on here is the Jews to be taught by Moses and God's telling Moses to teach the Jews that the ultimate journey is to be able to take that which has fallen the lowest and bring it up to the highest. Interesting, I will just, you know, share with you. It's interesting how our Rebbe of blessed memory started on Sundays, he would stand for hours giving out dollars. No other Rebbe did that. Yeah, there were Rebbe's that gave certain silver coins back in the day in special occasions together with blessings. 
However, there were times, for example, where other Rebbes would give alcohol to by a Fabrengen to say a Lachayim, and that would be a healing process. Interesting, right? In Russia, the big challenge that fell was alcohol. In America, the biggest challenge, the golden calf is the dollar. And therefore, it's interesting how each Rebbe took that which has fallen the lowest and used that specifically in acts of goodness and kindness and blessings. And that's what we're being taught here with the serpent of copper. Okay, let's go further. After that, they went, they traveled, and all of a sudden you find that a miracle happened and the Jewish people are singing praise to God. What happened? So what happened was that there were the nations that knew that the Jews were coming to conquer Israel and they wanted to ambush. So they hid in the mountains and were planning an ambush. Now, one of the things our sages teach us is that the clouds of glory, there used to be a lot more mountains in that desert. But the clouds of glory, one of the things it did was, it says clearly that it protected the Jews by killing the scorpions and killing the snakes. Wherever they, they were going in front of the Jews, they were protecting the Jews. And one of the things they also did was they moved, moved mountains. These are obviously all miracles. So what happened was when the clouds of glory came, the two mountains in between which those people were hiding to ambush moved and crushed. And what happened was it says like one was like, you know, like a ball, like the hip, a ball in a socket, and it fit in and it crushed those who were looking to ambush and kill the Jews. And then the question was, how would the Jews even know that God performed the miracle? And what happened was that God made that the brook should flow. And therefore, all of a sudden, they're seeing um, human limbs and blood and like wondering what happens. And they investigated, and they realized what happened and they sang praise to God. At the end of the Torah portion, we have the war of the two mighty kings. There were two mighty kings. You remember in Genesis, it talks about the giants. And from those giants, there were two offspring. One was Sichon and one was Og. And, and they, were, they were human beings, but they were giants. And they, each one was hired by a different kingdom to protect one. To protect them. Sihon, the king of Hezbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. And when Moses asked, they too, because the other two lands, which was protected by God, that we would not receive. Remember I told you we only received seven of the ten? So the other two was the offsprings of the two daughters of Lot. One was Moab, and one was Ammon. You remember it says when they got their father drunk because they thought after Sodom was turned over that God, again, like with the flood, wiped out the entire human race. Who would they, who, how would there be a continuity if they wouldn't get pregnant from their father? So they got their father drunk and they got pregnant from the father. One called the offspring Moab, which comes from the word Me'aba, from my father. And the other one is called Ammon, and which basically means my nation. Bring me again that it was brought from from us, from the father and the daughter. Um, and those two, again, God tells Moses that I gave it to Lot in reward for what he did with Abraham. And therefore, you cannot touch them until Mashiach comes. Now, Moab is being asked by, um, by Moses. Um, Moses is asking Moab to, uh, to let us cross through the land. We're not going to touch you. However, that's not what's happening. They come out. 
to wage war. And Sihon says, are you kidding me? They hire me to protect them and you want me just to let you march through? And they go to war. Moses fights against Sihon and he wins and they conquer. However, with Og, it says that Moses was afraid of Og. Why would Moses be afraid of Og? So there's an interesting teaching that Og helped Abraham. And therefore he felt that because Og had helped the patriarch of the Jewish people, the great and righteous, mighty Abraham, he was afraid that that merit would protect him. And therefore God says, no, he was given the option. He didn't take it. And therefore God tells Moses, don't be afraid, go forward. So in this week's Torah portion, there's finally the beginning of the Jewish people conquering what would become the land of Israel. However, I must express that they didn't cross the Jordan River yet. So we're talking about the other side of the Jordan River. And in Jewish law, you'll find in what ways the fact that they conquered it, it has the laws of Israel with the agricultural commandments and in what ways it doesn't, okay? So that is concerning the Torah portion. Let's go back to the red heifer. So I wanna share with you, why are we talking about the red heifer as the quintessential mitzvah in which it's actually being called Zot Chukat HaTorah? This is the statute of the entire Torah. And the reason is because as I shared with you, the secret of the red cow is the secret of balance between fire and water. What is the balance between fire and water? What is fire? What is water? And what is maintaining the balance between the fire and water? The fire, <laughs> No matter how you hold a candle, a match, you know that the fire will always go up. So if you have a candle and you just turn it upside down, the fire is still gonna come up. Water, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. Water, the nature of water is to always seep downwards, which is why we have well and well water. Because what happens is the water keeps on seeping downwards until it hits the bedrock. And then when it hits the inner rock, what happens? It's forced to now travel and being pushed by the next water coming down, it comes up. And that's how we have well water. Now, this difference between the fire always going up and the water always coming down, this duality is the secret of creation in the very first place because there is always the what we call ratsui and shuv. What does ratsui and shuv mean? It means ebb and flow. Now, before we get into the ebb and flow, let's talk about the very beginning of creation. How was it that creation started? So in Kabbalah, before ebb and flow, something which in the, within the infinite light happened, which is called mati veloi mati to incline outwards and not to incline outwards. So on the highest level of the infinite light, there was its own form of ebb and flow. As long as everything remains within the essence, within the infinite circular, so then there would be no creation. 
for the creation to take place, there would have to be an inclination outwards. Let's talk about this on the most humanistic way. For a human being, as long as we're going to remain within ourselves, without the inclination of a will to accomplish something or obtain something that is presently outside of ourselves, we would just stay in one place. We would accomplish nothing in this universe. All our accomplishments in the world is driven by a mati. My soul is all wonderful inside, but all of a sudden there's an inclination of the power of will to something outside. Rather than just to remain pleasantly comfortable within, I'm wanting something that I don't have, whatever that may be. So now I'm going to go out and get it. And so too it was, so to speak, in the infinite light. However, every single inclination outwards has to be rejuvenated by returning inward. Just like in the most practical sense, we go ahead and we wake up, we're rejuvenated, we use up our energy, and then we have to go to sleep in which we reconnect the faculties of the soul with the essence of the soul to be rejuvenated so that we have another day of rejuvenation in which we can now go out and accomplish more. So the ebb and flow, the inclination and return is consistent. Um, so much so that on the spiritual level, we're taught that the infinite light, which gives the, the sustenance and the power, the, vivi the vivifying of the universe is the same way. The light shines outwards, giving sustenance, but it gets, it gets depleted and therefore has to return to the source, get replenished, replete, and then it comes back down. So too, the definition of human life is, you know, from your blood pressure, there's the in, out, in, out, in, out. So the same thing, breathing. We can't just breathe in. We have to breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. So everything is made up with this du duality. And so too it is, on the more metaphysical level, everything we do, we start off with such a, oh, I'm gonna do this and this and that. You know, how many people enter into medical school and don't pull through? And because they started with just great passion, but passion needs to be fueled. Again, the outward, the return to get replenished. The outward, the return to get replenished. Now let's talk about it in our relationship to God. Fire represents the yearning. There comes a point in which every person at some moment feels, I don't want this whole rat race. Why can't I just live in the aura and the bosom and the, the oneness of God? And there comes a point where I'm just exhausted from all of this. What I would give to just pack my bags, move into Israel, just sit, study Torah, pray. Why do I need this whole rat race? So there's a yearning to leave everything and just become one with God and live, you know? I'm talking about Israel, but how many people, and I've actually met such people, you know? It was a big movement in the 60s. 
you know, forget this all. I'm going to Japan. I'm going to enter into a monastery and I just want to live into a spirituality of abstinence and just focus uh, on meditation and spirituality, connecting with the life force. And, and I don't need any of this. And we all yearn for this at some point, you know, you know, no matter how much we're chasing the, the, the fame and, and everything, there's just a moment of truth where like, why do we really need any of this? You know, all of this is depleting my soul, you know, making a deal with the devil or even not making a deal with the devil, even just really working hard. It, it just, it's so really six days a week, I have to work like a rat just to have some spirituality on Shabbos. I have to come home every day exhausted. I can't even have quality family time, be with the people I love, do what I most love because I'm so busy all day chasing like a hamster in a circle. So that's the yearning part. However, the yearning part has to always manifest itself back into the shuv, back into the physical. The wording of the verse is, if your heart is running, it's running to get out of here just to be with the oneness of God. You have, you have to know if your heart is running, return to the oneness. What does that mean, return to the oneness? What it means is that when we say here, O Israel, God is our God, God is one. What are we really saying? That there's only one God and not two gods? No, that's elementary. What we're really saying that everything is God and God is everything. We don't have to leave the rat race to find God. We just have to be in the rat race like a divine human being rather than like a rat. And we'll find God in everything we do. So every passion and yearning has to manifest itself into a action of goodness and kindness spirituality which is about abstinence running away isn't the true embodiment of being one with god and therefore in the world of judaism spirituality is not through abstinence locking yourself into a monastery meditation minimalism no when you ask a rabbi rabbi you know i'm just i'm feeling depleted of spirituality you know, I, I need to bring spirituality into my life. Most rabbis will ask you a simple question. Do you give charity? Do you help the poor? Do you invite people to your Shabbos table? Because that's where the truest spirituality is to be found. Do you do physical mitzvot? So the fire and the water, the balance when everything is brought down to its barest minimal spirituality, which is ashes, the entire great big cow is brought down to its most fundamental source of element, which is earth. Then we say, have you taken this, this elementary? Yes, we've pushed away the ego. We've lived now with this focus of being spiritual. And now the question is, what am I going to do with the spirituality? And the verse tells us, bring the ashes into the living waters. That which seeps downwards. The ultimate spirituality is not upwards. 
the ultimate spirituality is downwards, manifesting ourselves. Let's say what our sages say, that the life that we need to do is just like God clothed the naked with Adam and Eve, so too we must clothe the naked. Just like God feeds the hungry, so too must, me, must we feed the hungry. Just like God visited the sick after Abraham at the age of 99 circumcised himself, so too was, must we visit the sick. So purification is understanding where impurity comes from. Impurity comes from a lack of balance. When our spirituality becomes disconnected from our physical, practical life, and when our practical life is disconnected from our spirituality, we're bound to have impurity. But when we can bring our spirituality into our physical, practical life, then we're living a balanced life of purity and spirituality. And I'm now going to open the lines for your comments.